0: Welcome to MBA Unplugged. I'm your host, John Ford, or at least I'm your host until I get off the wait list at Berkeley. Should happen any day now. Uh, I'm here with a very interesting guest. We have Max Lerner. Uh, Max Lerner is a first year student at Marshall in the full-time program, and we're going to learn a whole lot about him and his background. He worked on political campaigns for a long time, and now he's here at Marshall to pursue consulting. Max, thanks for being on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. You know, I waved when you said my name, but now I realize it's a podcast. So that, that warm feeling will probably get lost. Um,
0: <laughs> it does record a video when we become really popular, like op- <laughs> popular enough that meal kit delivery services are having me do ad reads instead of c for c We'll start a YouTube channel and we'll put the, uh, the video up there for the true fans.
1: Hey, buy your c for c tailgate tickets
0: yes buy your c4c <laughs> tailgate tickets and uh <laughs> subscribe to the patreon to get the video of this conversation um so max let's get into your background a little bit and, and start yeah with where you're from and then we can move into what you've been doing before business school and then sort of talk about your martial experience and where you want to go from here so uh, give us a quick intro on where max learners from
1: yeah so i grew up uh, in Maryland, near Washington, D.C. Um, Bethesda, very close to Washington, D.C. was a um, Spent a lot of time growing up uh, kayaking and in the outdoors. My dad was really into that. He got me into kayaking in the outdoors and the Potomac River is actually this kind of not known, but there are some whitewater sports and people going to D.C. don't forget to check out Great Falls, um, some 20-foot waterfall not too far away from the very still Potomac you see by the, the Kennedy Center and on the mall. Um, and that was a, a, a ton of fun. So,
0: How far outside Bethesda do you have to go to get to a place like Great Falls?
1: Not at all. There's a community Cabin John, very close. Um, maybe we're talking uh, 15, 20 minutes. It's, uh, it's really close.
0: Now, when you told me that you were from the D.C. area and that, you worked in campaigns. I kind of assumed that your parents were in the political sphere in some capacity, but it turns out they're not really in politics at all.
1: No, not at all. My parents are both from New York, uh, lived not too far away from each other in New York, and uh, but met at American University where they went to law school. Um, My uh, dad uh, wanted to be an environmental lawyer. He ended up practicing corporate law I heard plenty of stories about litigation involving Texas made versus Chinese made paintbrushes and disputes over like a nickel worth of tariffs um, from the the different paintbrush manufacturers. But he ended up hating law and uh, had a couple different careers before ultimately becoming a financial advisor, which was great for me now as a business school student, because I kind of grew up with CNBC on in the background and my dad kind of teaching me about the markets and uh, um, everything that went along with it. And as someone interested in politics, you know, my dad kind of, and really interested in history, my dad kind of knew that. He kind of taught, taught me everything through the lens of the Great Depression because that had so many interesting, um, you know, and really phenomenal things happening. And you also, you get the whole history of Dust Bowl and all the all the stuff that the market doesn't capture, but that impacts the market kind of, you um, and that leads to quality of life and all the things we're talking about. My mom, she works for the Small Business Administration doing litigation work uh, for them. And she's been in the same job for about 30 30 years. So um, very different career trajectories even though they were in the same school, which I guess we'll we'll see from our Marshall students.
0: Did she like being a lawyer?
1: She's still a lawyer to this day. Um, She does. Uh, You know, it's interesting. It makes sense that my dad would be leave law for business. My mom loves being confrontational. <laughs> it makes sense that she is a litigator. Uh, and you you could hear that when she's on the phone with like a, a really, uh, you know, difficult customer service representative. She is not, <laughs> she loves, um, you know, winning things and uh, having like an opponent in a dispute. My dad, I think by his nature is much more collaborative um, and he's know the nature of his work financial advising he's always just trying to you know best serve his clients um and work with them and work with you know his business partners so i think that kind of personality traits make make some sense
0: it's no surprise to me as somebody who went to law school uh before doing the army jag thing and doing business school it's no surprise to me that the government lawyer liked their job and the private lawyer didn't (laughs) yeah um that that, by the way, for the folks at Gould, that is the most important thing you will ever hear on this podcast, no matter how many episodes we do. And so, after uh, growing up in Bethesda, you decided to go to college at the University of Michigan. Why Michigan?
1: Um, I remember well. I knew I wanted a big school. Uh, I knew I wanted like a classic college experience, and I remember visiting Ann Arbor before I was admitted. You know just one of those perspective student thing. And it was really this one moment I could really isolate. It was walking to this really old bookstore on this like college town street and just really feeling like, you know, the smell of that old bookstore, like this is what I want in a college experience and um, all, the, all the fun that, that goes with it and all the unique Ann Arbor things. And I ended up loving Michigan, not just Ann Arbor, but you know, working on campaigns. I really got to see a huge amount of the state Two of my best friends in undergrad were from the uh, Upper Peninsula and still kind of live there now. That's a very weird part of the, um, of the world, uh, you know, <laughs> a little different. It it's, uh, has one of the largest Finnish uh, populations. It's outside of Finland. There's this actual, there's some Finnish language TV channel there, and it's uh, right on Lake Superior, so you get those brutal winters, but it's really beautiful. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredible state and being from the East coast, seeing Michigan, the culture differences, the geography, it was, it was really, really cool. And now I'm out here, which is the best of all the places I've, I've been, I'm really happy in LA.
0: Did the Finns want the uh, familiar bite of cold in winter? Was that where they settled up there?
1: Uh, That must've been a factor, you know, it's, um, it is, it is weird, the history of how that part of the country was settled. There's still a large uh, French, I mean, they don't speak French anymore, but like that's their ethnic ancestry. And they're like descendants of French fur traders and trappers and stuff. There's all this weird history. And like, I got to go to Austin and I like kind of knew that there were a lot of Germans who like migrated to Texas, but like seeing that whole Thing actually still existing today from the 19th century it's kind of cool
0: well the minnesota vikings are called the vikings because of how many swedes moved to minnesota
1: i hadn't put that together but that does that does make a lot of sense yeah
0: M- michigan and minnesota man those nordic countries those immigrants stayed on brand they really mm-hmm. stayed on brand
1: and now in the 21st century there's no deviating from it
0: yeah uh, so coming from dc you did end up going into politics and working on campaigns. Tell me a little bit about how you got started in doing that.
1: Yeah, I had a teacher in high school who really um, encouraged me to get more interested. I was always interested in history and politics. Um, but he taught government and economics. He was the mock trial coach. So I, I got really involved with all those things um, because of, of my admiration for this teacher who was, he had worked in the Senate as like a, a legislative person. Um, So, you know, I just kind of started volunteering in Maryland, which, you know, was just something to do because it's not like it was the, I remember my first time ever kind of going door to door and doing that part of it was for the primary in the 2012 election in Maryland, where we had an uncontested election for president, for US Senate, and for Congress. (laughs) But, you know, it was something to do. And um, I, I came to college and got super, super involved with college Democrats with any local campaign I could find. Um, And I really loved how accessible everything was. Um, You know, you got to meet candidates, you got to hear why they were running. You got to go out and do the actual work that would make a difference. And then kind of throughout my time in college, I realized, well, you could create this warm environment and kind of encourage people to get involved. You can uh, train them and, you know, make them really effective at, pushing their friends and uh, neighbors to vote, which, you know, in a place like Ann Arbor in a competitive state like Michigan, you know, the more voters, uh, the better it's gonna be for for my side. Um, And, you know, as I I moved on, I realized there was this huge opportunity to empower people and have like a multiplying impact. Um, And that was one of the reasons I I felt like my work was so important in campaigns.
0: And you kept working in campaigns uh, for some number of years after graduating college, right? How many years did you work on campaigns?
1: From until my last day working on a a campaign officially was when I packed up in Georgia in like late January, 2021. So, you know, for five years.
0: So you were involved in the Georgia special?
1: I was involved in the Georgia special in 2017 in that uh, Georgia sixth election that was the most expensive congressional campaign in- Sorry, I'm US going history. out of order.
0: I meant, the, I meant the runoff.
1: Yeah, and then most recently, yeah, that was the runoff um, for the, uh, the Senate elections there. Um, and that was, um, the, the problems we faced were kind of the opposite of most campaigns. Uh, most campaigns are um, like doing anything they can to get an extra dollar. And certainly we spent all the money we got, uh, but we, you know, there are diminishing returns to putting more and more money on television ads or in digital ads, like, and having so much money because it was such a closely watched race and because so many people were giving, because, you know, it really did end up determining partisan control of the, of the Senate. So it was very consequential. Um, we had to really get creative um, and think about different ways to reach people. And one of the things we did that I was incredibly proud of um, and wouldn't have been possible without the work of a a lot of great people, local Georgians, uh, a lot of great younger operatives who really spearheaded this we did, uh, it was a paid relational program. So there's been this whole movement in the campaign world, uh, not away from, but kind of in addition to the traditional voter contact, you you get a list of voters and you go out and try and call them or talk to them at their doors Um, kind of, okay, you're in a community, you're, let's see which one of your neighbors needs to get persuaded to vote, or which one of your neighbors is uh, a poor voter, you know, in the sense that they don't vote very regularly. But if they did vote, you know, that could, that could make a real impact. So we really leaned into that heavy. Um, And uh, the problem with that relational organizing, as it had been done and executed before, was that, It's kind of the problem that a lot of smaller campaigns face, you know, there's this selection bias, the people who do that sort of thing, their friends are already engaged, you know, their friends are good voters. You really needed people who didn't think about voting to, to do this relational work so that this program could have the reach that it needed to. Um, and we realized kind of, you need people
0: who speak the language of the people they're trying to reach, which is not the way that super politically engaged people usually talk.
1: Yeah. I mean, so what we did was we just started hiring as many people who completed a training, um, and, uh, were willing to you know, download this app and use them. And they became a part of our team and uh, the people who were running those trainings and the people who were recruiting them did such an incredible job um, of making the the it was about tw- it was over twenty eight hundred you know locals that we hired uh, to do this paid relational work um, and they felt like they were part of a team and when you feel that way because you're, you're getting paid because you have a title you know and your friends see that you're part of this meaningful network it it had a huge impact. Um, And, uh, we, we had over 150,000 conversations and what, like, that is impressive because it's a big number, but a huge statewide election, there were lots of big numbers flying around. I mean, I could 10 million phone calls in a week, like it's crazy stuff just because of all the energy there, but it wasn't about volume. It was about quality. And, um, I think there are gonna be people who try and replicate that around the country and I hope they find a way to be successful, but you needed that confluence of like, you had the, the infrastructure to make it happen. I mean, part of the, that was the timing of the election. Uh, December is a great time to try and hire political operatives because they all just lost their jobs. So we had, and all this interest and all this talent from all over the country you know, people were, were coming to work in Georgia, and it was super easy because everything was still remote at this point. Um, there, of all the people we hired for like the full time administrative or rec- uh, work, you know, a lot of them were were in their homes and and not in the state. So that really, I was in Georgia, but a lot of folks weren't, and um, it was it was just an incredible opportunity. And also for me, just personally, being able to be there after spending the entire 2020 election cycle, quarantined um, pretty much. I remember my last trip to a, a campaign office. I was going to um, our one of our offices in Northern Jersey uh, for uh, to meet with uh, Mikey Cheryl, who's a congresswoman from that area's team. And yeah, like my boss called me and was like, you know, if you don't feel comfortable getting on a train to come back, Know or if trains are getting canceled because this was this, and then like it was like a Monday or Tuesday, and I think it was that Wednesday when I got back that that uh Oklahoma City um NBA game got like canceled midway, and then like things really uh got shuttered. Um, so being back in a campaign office, even if it wasn't you know with the regular traffic, it was it was it was great. Um, so I'd like to
0: sort of set a baseline so that everyone knows what we're talking about because we're doing what i just referred to which is people who are really politically engaged just (laughs) speaking an often inaccessible language i realized about halfway through your answer that there are probably people who don't even know what election we're talking about when i say the georgia runoff um so this was 2020 u.s senate race in georgia there were two senate races um one was a a Senate term that ended, and one was a election a election to fill the remainder of.
1: Johnny Isaacson, Sach-
0: yeah, Johnny Isaacson resigned for I think medical reasons, right? Mm-hmm. And so he resigned, and there was an election to fill the last two years or four years of his seat.
1: Two years, because now uh, yeah, our buddy Rev yeah. Ward, running again, you know.
0: Um, so there are two simultaneous Georgia races, and in Georgia if you don't get over 50%, the top two finishers go to a runoff. So it's, it's basically this jungle primary and then the top two finishers go to a runoff if nobody gets to 50%. And the whole country's eyes were on Georgia in December and January, because those two seats were gonna decide who controlled the Senate. And so you were kind of at the center of that storm because it was 50 Republicans and 48 Democrats and Democrats needed both of those seats to control the Senate. Um, And you were just like in the center of that storm doing field for those campaigns. And I I think it's an interesting way to end your work on campaigns because I, I think the congressional campaigns and Senate campaigns you worked on are an interesting window into the country's political evolution and the way the political map has changed over the last five or six years. Because the first House campaign you worked on was in 2016, the yeah. year Trump won. And it was with a candidate named Gretchen Driscoll up in Michigan. And tell us a little bit about who Gretchen Driscoll was and what kind of district she was running in.
1: Gretchen Driscoll was an incredible. Is keeps saying in the past tense. She's, she's a, a really wonderful woman single mother, grandmother. Um, and she was the mayor of her small town in Michigan um, where she really focused on like downtown development and revitalizing like a, a small town that you know, was maybe past its prime and looking forward to a new era in Celine. Um, then she ran for state house in 2012. That's when I first met her. Um, I was, uh, you know, freshman in college, just trying to help out in any race I could. And this was, this, for some reason, this really hotly contested state house race with tons of outside money and all this stuff. Um, and yeah, 2016, she announced her campaign really early because it's this sprawling district that covers all these different media markets that makes it actually... You wouldn't think it, but it's one of the most expensive congressional districts to run in because it's like 40% of the districts in the Detroit media market. And then the rest of it's in these smaller ones. So you have to kind of play in a lot of them. So she had to start early to start raising money. And I I joined her team as an intern and then as a full-time field and communication staffer. And the district was super interesting because there was the area just west of Lansing and just west of Ann Arbor. And that was like becoming more suburban. It had historically been like small towns, but you know, those growing communities were kind of pushing it a little more suburban and, and by extension a little bit more democratic. Um, and then you had all of these places: Adrian, Jackson, Monroe, these uh Rust Belt communities um that uh used to be manufacturing hubs that you know deindustrialization really hurt them a lot. And this and then in between a lot of rural areas. So politically, this was an area that Obama won narrowly in 2008. Romney won it just narrowly in 2012, and then Trump won it by about 20 points. Um, Trump just totally cleaned up there. We didn't do nearly as well in the suburban areas that we thought we were going to do, and in the rural and like Rust Belt communities where historically Democrats had done pretty well, or you know, okay, or. Not so great, but there was there was a variation there. We just got smoked everywhere. Um, you know, driving around and, the district, you'd Sorry.
0: And these are mostly small towns and medium sized towns, and then rural areas as you go further west. And it's just west of Detroit and Lansing, and Ann Arbor, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, you drive around, and um, you know, Hillary for prison signs all over the place, and uh, you know. Trump flags, and you really got the sense that Trump's message was resonating with people, that they, um, trade was a huge issue in that election. And we tried to capitalize on that and, you know, distance ourselves from Obama and the National Democratic Party and highlighting our candidates' uh, opposition and concern to, you know, TPP, which was the trade hot button issue of the day, the big, Obama's big Trans-Pacific Partnership deal. But, you know, you really felt the growing uh, polarization, you know, historically, you know, maybe you love Trump, but you might consider voting for the, the party that your union tells you to vote for, or the candidate for Congress, even if you really like one candidate. But there was such a team mentality um, that like, you know, I would go up to a, someone and you know, tell them about how the incumbent member of Congress had voted for every single trade deal, he never opposed a trade deal. Um, and if that's why they were voting for Trump, then they should consider voting for our, our candidate. Um, and they were like, "Look, look at my flag. You know, there's no way, <laughs> there's no way I'm going to consider voting for, for a Democrat." And it was um, it was it was interesting because these were people who had voted for Democrats before. But uh, who was the opponent? Know, his name's Tim Wahlberg. He actually has an p- interesting political story too, because he held the seat that a pro-choice Republican held. He's a man named Joe Schwartz held the seat for one term. He helped override George Bush's veto of a partial birth abortion uh, ban bill um, and he Tim Wahlberg was a like small town pastor um, who kind of got aligned with some gun and abortion groups and uh they kind of propped up uh, a lot of his political careers and you know uh, hadn't i want to say he never had a real job but he was mostly a, a legislator for most of his his time and um you know he won this seat um by beating to the right on abortion issues and on gun issues a you know very centrist a guy, I actually had this, Joe Schwartz was a professor at the public policy school, so I I got to know him well, and I feel a little defensive of him, Um, because he was, I mean, a doctor, legislative leader, he was, um, served in Vietnam, he had incredible stories of being a doctor in Vietnam, and, um, you know, he was someone who really took a nuanced position on pretty much every issue he held, and you know, Tim Wahlberg comes along with like slogan politics of, you know, baby killer, you know, he's take, coming for your guns. Um, and, you know, I think that in primaries, those tactics work. And that's kind of been Tim Wahlberg's shtick. He lost in 2008, and then we won his seat in 2010. And yeah, that become very Trumpy and held on to the district uh, ever since as the district's gone right.
0: But it's interesting that this is This is the kind of place in Michigan that is why Michigan voted for Donald Trump. And it was a place that when you start the campaign, you're probably thinking, you know, we've got a good chance of winning this election at the presidential level. And if that happens, it's a swing district, anybody's game. This is a popular local mayor, pretty strong candidate on paper. And then all of a sudden, Donald Trump completely changes the political geography of the United States and rural America just comes pouring out for Donald Trump. And it's really interesting that you were sort of there at the fault line in the swing state uh, to see that up close and personal. And then the next campaign you were on was the next year in 2017. This was a special election in Georgia. And for people who wonder, well, if Donald Trump ran up all these huge margins in swing areas in rural areas of the country. How did Hillary win the popular vote? How did Joe Biden win in 2020? where did the votes come from? Well, we're about to talk about the places they came from because as hard as those rural areas swung, for Trump, suburban America swung just as hard against him. Not all right away, but you, you were in suburban Atlanta in the Georgia sixth district
1: yeah. It was
0: so this is uh Tom Price was the incumbent, right? And he resigned to become the health secretary in the Trump administration. And so the Republicans thought, you know, this is a seat we've held for as long as I've been alive for sure, I think. I think this was Newt Gingrich's seat.
1: It was Newt Gingrich's yeah. seat. Um and uh it, it was was really interesting actually tom price i think he had to resign as health secretary because of like insider trading allegations or some sort of corruption before the election even (laughs) finished it was Um, a private plane oh yeah that was what it was yeah misusing of of the private plane but yeah this this was suburban uh northern suburbs of atlanta um historically super republican um and my region i i managed a uh One of our offices was in Marietta, which was the most Republican part of the district. But still, this was a place that we, um, Democrats never had any success in. Uh, And people were really turned off by Trump. And kind of in the opposite ways that people were turned off by Hillary in Michigan. Um, You know, one thing we were very, Care, conscious of was like not to run as a politician. Like we didn't count Gretchen Driscoll's time in the state legislature at all. It was very much about decredentializing her and talking about her as you know a community leader. Um, but those tack for some like the Hillary Clinton's um, accomplishments did resonate with this electorate a bit more. It was the it was a a very Republican district but a pro-choice district. It's like this interesting mix of 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 people that live in the Northern suburbs of Atlanta. And yeah, they, they were not about the Donald Trump Republican party. Um, and we had a very, uh, this was one of my initial experiences with like liberal guilt of 2016 <laughs> because all this money came pouring in to our campaign. Um, you know, I, I started working in February of 2017 we were in the candidate's parents' basement, you know, uh, watching our contributions just explode um, as, you know, he became a more viable candidate and got endorsements from, you know, publicized his support from people like John Lewis and uh, other, other leaders. Um, and, you know, these, these suburban communities, you know, you're right, it was ground zero of the political realignment in America.
0: And you got to see the rural shift and then the suburban shift. And in 2017, it was almost enough to take John Ossoff to victory, which was pretty remarkable because usually Republicans had the advantage in off-year elections in a non-presidential year because they usually had a little bit higher turnout uh, in these off years. And so to almost take a Republican district in a special election, really signaled a shift. And then come 2020, you were working still in Georgia for the Ossoff for Senate campaign, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And, it's, and now, it's inter- yeah. I was gonna say, it's interesting that, you know, both of those campaigns were some of the most expensive for their kind, but it was, um, that was all sm- small dollar, you know, huge amount of people donating a small amount of money um, that powered these, uh, both the 2017 and the 2020 Senate runs. Um, On the other side, in 2017, it was very noticeable. All of the ads were run by a group called CLF, Congressional Leadership Fund, which is a huge super PAC. It was basically the House Republican leadership. It was basically Paul Ryan's super PAC. And you know, we don't know for certain, but we had a strong suspicion that really it was just a few billionaires writing all of the checks for that. But, you know, you'll, you'll never know with, with super PACs, but that's kind of, you know, uh, a very interesting contrast in, in how how things will unfolded on that front.
0: Yeah. And we could talk a little bit about the, the campaign finance piece and the role that fundraising plays in these campaigns, because I think, you know, if you work on these campaigns, you get a real sense of how the money really works, but. I just think it's fascinating that you got to see the rural shift in michigan you have to see the beginning of the suburban shift the other way and then you got to see it reach its culmination when those atlanta suburbs had shifted more shifting enough to take the whole state for the democrats and it, it's a fascinating window into a big big change in american politics let's talk about the finance piece a little bit and the role that money plays um because i think when people think about a congressional campaign, right? Their image in their head is a Norman Rockwell painting. Basically it's, it's guys in high school basketball gyms doing town halls and shaking hands and kissing babies. And that is really not what the day-to-day is for the
1: most part. Right. Right. Um, you know, I, I think the biggest reason why that's not the day-to-day is because people, especially, you know, undecided voters or less engaged voters, they wouldn't go to a, a gym to, to meet all their candidates for Congress. You know, they, you kind of need to to come to them with the message. Um, You can't expect people to reach out to you or try and come to an event and meet your candidate one-on-one. So uh, the way you do that, the way you meet them is, you you try and have a lot of volunteers uh, who go out and talk to as many folks as possible, but then you you try and communicate them directly over the candidate speaking to them on TV ads or YouTube ads or other digital or radio ads Um, and to do that requires a lot of, uh, fundraising and the, you know, we were discussing earlier in our, another conversation about how, you know, the individual limit for a campaign is, uh, for an individual to give a campaign is $2,800. Um, so if you have a lot of friends who can give $2,800, you know, that, that's a lot of money. That's, that's, that's a great Way, but you know, more most re, mo, the way most people raise money, uh, not because it's how they want to raise money. Can, nothing candidates like doing less than asking people for, for money. Uh, you know, if they they have to call individuals, they have to call people in their network, they have to call uh, potential supporters, uh, people who they know support Democrats, people who you know maybe don't like their opponent. There's this whole way of of thinking about. I'm sure, John, you could say more about the, uh, the wheels of the circles of, of potential donors in oh, yeah. your network. Um, but it's, it's time really is what it is. And in an election, you know, money is a really important limited resource. But time is, I think, even more so an important limited resource. You can't do anything after Election Day. You just have to contact as many votes as you can. And also that you have the end date of Election Day. But you also have a time where you know, over the summer, only so many people are actually paying attention. Um, so it's really, really, uh, challenging.
0: You mentioned the super PACs and that's such an interesting element because, um, I hear less and less about super PACs as time has gone on. Do you get the sense that their importance has gotten less because I, I okay.
1: No, you oh, have a different no, view. No, sorry. It Continue. seems to me
0: that maybe they haven't quite been as effective as people thought that they would be.
1: I, um, I think independent sources of of money, and by that I mean not from the campaign itself and not from a party organization, are incredibly consequential um, in our political system and uh, very dangerous. You know, we don't know who is supporting different people. There are rules around not uh, not uh, they call it a wall that's supposed to go up between the campaign side or the candidates and the, um, and the independent expenditure of the super PACs. But, you know, it's imagine that that can be hard to enforce at times. I know it's something we took very seriously at the DCCC, but um, you know, party organizations are under a lot of scrutiny. Um, We get audited by the federal elections commission very regularly, which makes sense. Um, You know, obviously a lot of money is running through the DNC or the RNC or whatever. Um, But for super PACs, I, I, I don't know as much about how that, that goes down and um there's a lot of money being spent in georgia uh the, su- the 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 on the republican side it was super PAC spending it wasn't really the campaign spending as much uh, there was plenty of campaign spending but it much more came from from independent groups and uh you know um it's interesting from the part of me that is interested in campaigns as a competitive and operational exercise. Uh, it, the super PACs have to pay more for each point of television ads. When you're a candidate, there are laws that saying you have to, you're, you, you purchase at the, the lowest possible price. So super PACs pay a premium. So there were more dollars spent against John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock. But because our contributions were through the campaign, which meant that every person disclosed that they were an American citizen, they disclosed their employer and their, their job, um, you know, their age and their address, all this information, um, which isn't true on the Super PAC side, we actually, our money was more efficient, efficiently spent than a lot of the Republican money, which you know, I, I think it's cool. And it's, I think we're rewarding campaigns that are more grassroots oriented, but you know, we've, we've got a real problem with campaign finance situation and there's not an obvious solution because you introduce new regulations there are gonna be people just like with any regulations that find a way around them. Um, and uh, you know, you at some point you're making more money for the accountants and the lawyers and we had a massive compliance team. All these party organizations oh, yeah. have massive compliance teams and there are whole, there's a whole industry in DC of people who just, all their firms do is <laughs> compliance for, uh, for campaigns. So you're just feeding fire to that industry. So I'm not sure what the solution is, but I, I, I'm, really, I'm scared of the status quo um, and it, it impacts more than just legislative elections. It impacts a, a lot of different ways our government functions, and it's a shame.
0: Well, when you're running a campaign and you have to raise $5 million to run a competitive house race, and you've got to do it basically $200 at a time, and then your opponent is the lucky one and lightning strikes, and a few billionaires decide, this is the race I'm going to pour money into, and suddenly $8 million comes in from out of the district from seven people And all of a sudden, the race that you ground and ground and ground away to try to raise the money to win, uh, all of a sudden, that advantage is just evaporated instantly. And your non-viable opponent is suddenly viable because a handful of people decided to spend money from out of state. And then you get the uh, the sort of scam of all time, which is the super PACs run by congressional leadership, which is, I mean, when you read the Citizens United decision... you can support or oppose that decision. That was, the idea behind that decision was not congressional leadership should be able to have a side door to raise unlimited sums of money. Hmm. Whatever you think of that decision, that is not what it was about. And that's what it has become because of the Federal Elections Commission interpreting the ruling the way that they did. Um, And you can see, I mean, there's the obvious problems of the influence that that much money can wield but then you have the problem of the imbalance and the sort of randomness of who those super PACs, the outside groups decide to support uh, while you have to grind away six hours a day on the phone. Cause like a bad candidate calls for money two hours a day. A good candidate calls four hours a day and a great one calls six hours a day. And I think, you know, that's something that a lot of people don't fully appreciate is that a huge amount of the candidates time is spent just on the phone calling people and asking for a hundred dollars. Yeah. You know, I've had, I've had incumbent members of Congress call me and like beg for $50. Mm-hmm. And you can just get hit by lightning and a super PAC shows up with 12 million and you're grinding away 50 bucks at a time, calling John Ford, who doesn't even have a job right now because he's in an MBA. <laughs> um,
1: yeah it's certainly there's so many things about this that aren't fair. Um, I had one of my mentors suggested making a political like campaign board game where you could do all these things, raise money, hire people, run TV ads, whatever. But then at the end of the game, you roll a dice to see if you were caught in a wave election year, (laughs) you know, like, like we were, and if nothing you did ended up mad, <laughs> making a difference, which is kind of, you know, that's, that what is what it feels like. You run a great campaign and you can get bombed by opposition money or, you know, you're a Republican in 2006 and everybody hates the war in Iraq and you get smoked, even if you ran a great, great race or you're a Democrat in rural Michigan in 2016 and you get smoked because everyone falls in love with Trump and, you know, takes his advice and only votes for his party. So it's yeah. certainly not fair. But that's life.
0: So, we talked about another issue that's come up in politics recently and is sort of a dominant feature. We talked a little about fundraising, but you mentioned polarization and you've got some some interesting out of the box ideas about how to deal with polarization. And I want to give you a chance to talk about your idea that we both like, but that will never happen.
1: Well, um, you know, I, I think it's inter- our whole system of government is, you know, designed to be based around. Making a consensus. And right now we have a very polarized electorate, and I think our, our institutions reflect that. And I think, you know, multi party system, uh, multi member districts, I think uh, ranked choice voting, there are a lot of different things we could do to allow a polarized system to work. Um, I think that, you know, ranked choice voting has gone really well in like Maine. I think. New York, which I know from my DCCC days, which is not a great implementer of elections, <laughs> um, gave it perhaps a bad headline after the drama around their mayoral elections. We but, don't even have
0: time to talk about what's wrong with New York politics.
1: <laughs> Whatever
0: the listener thinks is wrong with American politics, just double it and that's New York.
1: Yeah, I, I, um, we have to have a system that takes into account where people are and how they feel and hopefully could allow us to still govern within that you know i don't know john what what are some of your thoughts on on how we can make be governable with a polarized electorate
0: i mean we have polarized voters who elect polarized legislators to operate in a government that has multiple veto points and then we wonder why nothing gets done. Mm-hmm. We have an electorate that desperately wants a parliamentary system and is voting like they're in a parliamentary system. And we have a presidential system of separation powers and either voters are gonna have to get on board with compromise oriented legislators or we should just have a parliament and change the constitution.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's really valid. I also think part of that is Throughout the centuries of American history, the president has accumulated so much power and a lot of unchecked power. And from a pure, like small D democratic standpoint, um, that's another problem. I don't know the solution to. No, it seems like Congress has been unwilling to assert itself in certain ways, and certainly their Congress's dysfunction makes it easier for the president to to step in, but. I, I don't think it's good for the business world to know that, oh, you're going to get a Republican coming in. They'll have all these executive orders on one thing. You'll get a Democrat come in next who will undo them. You know, I, I, we, um, and that, that's ju- that, that say nothing of, of all the foreign affairs implications of having just really one person making the decisions. Um,
0: well, and that know. relates to something that you mentioned in the pre-interview, which is that the institutions that really matter in our system now are the political parties and not the actual branches of the government.
1: Yeah. I mean, even thinking about, uh, how the state and the federal government interact, you know, you have a democratic president and our state attorneys general, uh, who are Republicans are just going to sue to stop everything he does. And, you know, it was the same thing that happened with the Democrats, state officials when Trump took power. Um, and, uh, you know, you could say it's good to have a, a check, but it's really like pushing. There's no, there's not enough constructive stuff happening. We're right. exploiting all parties are exploiting all these veto points, you know, and for gain.
0: So I'm going to take a minute to do a quick plug for C for C, and then we can get into some more questions. Great. C for C Challenge for Charity, as everyone knows, is a organization that raises money for a number of wonderful causes that make a difference for people, Special Olympics, Junior Achievement, uh, Heal the Bay, and occasionally other rotating charities get brought into the mix. And C4C hosts tailgates before major USC football games. So the next time you see one of those tailgates posted, you should go, you should have a great time, and just know that the money you spend on that ticket is going to go to a good cause. So support the C4C tailgates. Absolutely. All right. We're going to do some fun questions. Those politics things were fun for me. I guess our rate review and subscribe numbers will decide whether they were fun for the listeners. (laughs) Here's some some questions that I think will be fun for everybody. Uh, What's the worst movie you've ever seen?
1: The worst movie I've ever seen is, um, it was called David and Goliath it was an old, I think it was probably made in the fifties. I don't know why, but my grandma used to love, she moved in with us when I was pretty young. She loved buying like random DVDs in the era of DVDs. Or maybe it was just called David, but it was just about the, it was, you know, the story of David and Goliath, but it was like the lowest production you've ever seen, the worst acting. And that's like such a bad movie that, you know, people wouldn't even know about it, nor should they, but, you know like we think things you see a bad movie and yeah i'm sure it's bad but like there is something that where everything was going wrong out there you know
0: what's uh when was that movie made do you know
1: you no really.
0: i assume nobody that i would know is even in it
1: oh i'm sure that girl. this is
0: like community theater level casting
1: i think it might be this 1960 one that i'm seeing online uh Oh, maybe, yeah, that could be it. Orson Welles and David and Goliath could have been Orson Welles. Oh my I don't God. know. I'm not a, not um, i am not a uh, huge Orson Welles fan, but I, I did really like Citizen Kane. You know, I haven't seen. I don't know. That's uh What's your worst movie?
0: Oh God! You're gonna turn the tables on. Isn't, it's, the f- it's the first episode as host, the guest is already turning the tables on me.
1: You know, in politics, we learn um, to answer the, the question yeah. you wanted to get asked, not the question you were asked. Um, but no, no, you don't have to answer as, as the person now at the tables turned.
0: I'll answer. <laughs> I, was, I was hoping that that uh, maybe we. You know, maybe it would be a secret that I could hold for several episodes, but I guess I'll answer just this one. Just this one I'll answer for you.
1: Okay. I won't Uh, spin any other back on you.
0: It's a movie called Star Crash. It's from the 1970s and it is a sci-fi movie made by a mid-major studio. And what basically happened is the studio chief saw Star Wars and he went to his staff and he said, hey, you guys, (laughs) go go get me a Star Wars. I want to have one of those Star Wars. And so they bought the rights to a book called Star Crash. They hired a screenwriter. The screenwriter never read the book. Instead, he wrote a terrible screenplay based on the cover of the paperback book that he got at a local bookstore. And what he imagined the book was probably about. And it is a truly terrible, basically incoherent sci-fi movie with, what you're talking about production values out of like your local community theater in Wichita, Kansas. It was, it's bad enough that it's worth watching.
1: That is well, like I, you know, Ann Arbor, there are a couple of big movie theaters there and there was always a, an annual showing of the room, which, yeah, it's like that. It's so bad. You have to go watch it. Um, and I I don't know if you saw the disaster artist, the, the James Franco movie they made about the making of the room, but that was, if if people haven't checked out, probably watch that. You can maybe take a pass on the room, but it was uh, so bad. You got to see it.
0: What's a kind of music that you like that you're embarrassed to like.
1: Kind of music. I like that. I'm embarrassed to like, I have a pretty, um, I, 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 being coming from the political world, uh, I don't have a ton of shame, you know, <laughs> but um, certainly there's plenty of, of pop music that, you know, I wouldn't go bragging about. I wouldn't say I like love Taylor Swift, but there was a couple of Taylor Swift songs that really resonated with me. That end game song and a couple Ariana Grande songs. There's no I reason really to like. be
0: embarrassed about liking Taylor Swift. No I, reason to be embarrassed I, about that at all.
1: I, well, you know, you, uh, that question kind of assumes that I have a, lot of, a little bit of shame about my uh, musical taste. It's actually, um, I, you know, I, I applied to, to USC um, and wanted to come out here. My, my fiance worked at the Metropolitan Opera in New York and you know, she loves the performing arts and has always wanted to be an arts administrator. So when we were looking at places for school, you know, if I wasn't gonna be in New York, you know, LA made a lot of sense. Um, and I kind of applied to USC with, you know, more of a traditional business school in mind, but it's been so awesome, you know, to meet all the people from the entertainment business, uh, either who are pivoting out of it or who are fast-tracking their career within it. Um, so, you know, it's been, it's been really, really cool.
0: What's the last book you read?
1: The last book I read that wasn't about business and that I actually Yeah, textbooks don't count. Well, there's a book i'm reading right now called range um how generalists succeed in a specialized world and i'm about a quarter of the way through it it's really good Uh, but the last book i read like purely for fun um was called the cabinet how george washington created like an american institution um and there was so being in campaigns you know you go through periods of of time when you're not on a campaign um, I w- i've i been fairly lucky uh to get jobs on special elections and early positions but you know still you you have months in between sometimes and there was one period where i got really into george washington biographies and i've read a bunch and um including some on pretty specific topics so this was kind of one of them and this book came out in like it came out after hamilton like after the the musical got big, like I'm sure, who the woman who wrote this book wouldn't have picked out this topic had it not been for all the, the Hamilton, uh, hype um, and all the the cabinet room scenes. I actually haven't seen Hamilton yet. I saw a little bit of the Disney Plus recording, but um, you know, I I, I know that that did some good publicity for our treasure, our former Treasury Secretary and Secretary of State. So,
0: favorite place you've been,
1: Yellowstone National Park.
0: Beautiful. When did you go?
1: I've been twice. Um, when I was a little kid, we went over the summer little kid, I was like in fourth or fifth grade. Um, and in 2018, 2019, we went, um, in the winter and it was actually during the government shutdown. So we were lucky that in the winter, um, it's all kind of private resorts, but you have to Fly into Bill, uh, yeah, Billings. Drive to an entrance of the park, and then there's so much snow you have to like get on these special machines that take you around. Um, blanking what they're called, but it was it was really awesome. And I love cross, I love love the outdoors, love cross country skiing and snowshoeing and um, the wildlife, all that stuff. It's all up my alley. Love Yellowstone.
0: What's the place you want to go? Argentina interesting answer why Argentina
1: um want to see Patagonia and there are places I have like a, a climate change these are places I want to see sooner rather than later and like Patagonia is definitely on that list um I uh so I went a long time with being like not eating red meat I recently went back uh, I was at a Korean barbecue joint with some friends from high school are in town and that kind of It's like, oh, I'll have chicken, I'll have squid or whatever. And seeing the short ribs come through was really good. But I I need to go eat some, like go to some Brazilian Argentine steakhouses, hang out with some vaqueros and uh, eat some good beef.
0: Sounds good to me. Welcome back to the world of uh, red meat eaters.
1: I mean, I came to California in college to visit a friend who was a couple of years ahead of me and was living in Oakland. We went to In-N-Out but I didn't know how to order at In-N-Out. So it's like, what's all the hype about? And I've since been to In-N-Out and I I know what all the the hype is about. You know, I get it now.
0: It's interesting, you may be the only person who stopped eating red meat then came to California and started again.
1: (laughs) It it is certainly uh,
0: doing it the reverse of the usual. Speaking of coming to California, you're now at Marshall. Had you ever been uh, to the LA area before coming to Marshall?
1: I had been twice. Once was a family vacation. Um, we flew into Vegas, did Death Valley and Joshua Tree in the winter. And then we drove to LA. My dad is a friend from college here. I had a friend from high school living here. We hung out for an afternoon. and I took a red eye back because I had to get back to work. So it was that afternoon where I had some tacos. And then after that, it was looking for an apartment before I... Uh, I um, I, after I accepted Marshall. So I didn't uh, really know what I was getting into. You know, a lot of um, LA is a big reputation. Uh, I feel like I, as you said, I started eating red meat when I came here. I also, you know, I'm in Culver, live pretty close to the expo line. And, you know, the main place I go is school. So to me, LA is this wonderful public transit friendly city, but I know I just have the benefit of Marshall being right on an, an expo line stop. And, uh, but no, I, I really like it out here.
0: An atypical experience, certainly. Yeah. Um, some of my favorite LA movies are the movies that do posit that LA is just like full of high quality mass transit. <laughs> so Speed, for example, it's a yeah. very gr- very good LA movie. Love it's speed. all the entire movie is on a mass transit vehicle, obviously. Um, and then there's Collateral, which I don't know if you've seen, but it's a really good movie with Jamie Fox and Tom Cruise. I haven't. Yeah, so the whole movie is on taxi cabs and trains, basically. Um, and They're... in the last, and in the last scene, not to spoil it, but you know. The movie came out in 2004. If 17 years later, you haven't seen the movie. (laughs) You can't complain about spoilers on a podcast. Uh, The last scene, uh, Tom Cruise is the villain. He's basically a hitman. Jamie Foxx is a cab driver and he's taken hostage and has to drive Tom Cruise around LA while he assassinates people for a cartel. And at the end of the movie, it ends with a chase on the LA subway and Jamie Foxx kills Tom Cruise. And as Tom Cruise is dying, um, he's slumped over in one of the chairs on the subway car. And he looks up at Jamie Foxx and his last words are, I'm going to die on the LA subway. Do you think anyone will ever find me? <laughs> but people do write it now and it's a good subway. I've written it. It's actually a good subway. As long as you want to go to the like six places that it goes to.
1: Uh, cheaper than New York. And this, I don't think it's made national news in a big way, but they removed 40% of the cars on the DC Metro line because of like some derailments. So like, I'll take LA transit over what we've got at home right now, you know? Yeah.
0: Um, but you're enjoying LA, it's a good time.
1: Yeah, I'm really, really happy here. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely what I hoped business school would be like uh, in terms of opportunities to see a lot of things. So many people from different backgrounds I didn't expect so many like former lawyer, like people who went to law school like yourself and doctors and JD, MBA students and MD, MBA students, um, you know, people from other countries, uh, Michigan, I knew where I thought had, was a pretty international place, but um, not really, and certainly not compared to, maybe it was so big that it was easier for people to like stick in their own groups, being in a smaller class, certainly makes everything more intimate um but uh and, and then outside of marshall um it's so beautiful here everything's so close um in terms of like beaches and mountains and i can't wait for skiing to start big skier can't wait yeah i've and heard is- mixed things on big bear but it's got to be better than uh pennsylvania ski resorts
0: <laughs> yeah i don't complain too much about the california skiing because anytime you can live in a place where you're close to the beach and close to skiing and close to the desert and close to the mountains and close to literally anything that you want to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any topography you really want. We've got something like it here uh, or something close to what you would be looking for. So to have that diversity, it's really nowhere else in the country can match that. It's really a special thing.
1: Yeah. I feel like, Some places in Italy where you're close to the Mediterranean and the Alps is like the only other place in the world kind of like this, but um, no, I I love it out here.
0: Speaking of things you find in the wild, here's our next fun segment. A few months ago, a poll came out, you may have seen it, about Americans believing that they could win a fight against a wild animal. Did you see this poll? I did not. It's 15 different animals and Americans were asked if they believed they could fight an animal and win Mm -hmm. uh and a staggering number of americans believed that they could win these fights against wild animals and so we're going to spin a random number generator it's going to pick an animal we're going to see if you think you can beat that animal in a fight all right
1: before we uh do this i do have a clarifying question sure
0: excellent Uh, consulting move exactly i'm actually i'm
1: actually going to say what constitutes success here are we uh Fighting to the death? Are we just scaring the animal off?
0: I think it's not really clarified in the poll.
1: Okay. I'll, 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 and so I will
0: will leave it to you if it's winning on points, getting a wrestling pin, whatever you want.
1: Okay. Fair enough.
0: Um, Although some of the animals on this list. Whatever you're fighting for, they're fighting to the death.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Because
0: some of the animals on this list, and Americans said they could beat a grizzly bear in a fight. There are 6% of Americans did say that. Uh, A deeply, deeply delusional thing to say. Um, All right, let's spin the wheel. Okay. You get number 11. Could you beat a crocodile in a fight?
1: Uh. Could I beat a crocodile in a fight? I'm gonna say no. Could I outrun a crocodile? Also, probably not. <laughs> but I'd take my chances there.
0: You know, it's, it's against the rules. You're in an octagon with this thing. If
1: I'm in an octagon, yeah, I would. I would. Uh, I would punch and claw as long as I could. I guess my strategy, if I was able to, d- they're too strong is the problem. But if you're able to like stand on top of its like snoot, jump up and down, but they're too strong. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to beat it that way.
0: You don't have any uh, alligator wrestling experience from your time bordering Florida?
1: No, actually never really ventured outside Metro Atlanta, if you could believe that. Um, yeah. But uh, no alligators at the battery or in downtown Atlanta. Um, and if there were, I, I, of course, classic New York Jews, my grandparents live in Boca, plenty of alligators there, you know.
0: But none moving into suburban Atlanta. There's been a, there's no. been a big population shift into suburban Atlanta. Nobody brought, yeah. any, nobody brought any crocodiles with them. All right. So you could not beat the crocodile, but if you had to try, your strategy would be get to on top of him and jump. Get on Atlanta. top of
1: it. Yeah, that that would be the strategy. Because it's really the only threat is is from the mouth. I mean, it's a really big threat. But if you're able, that's got to be the strategy to neutralize that. And if you could break its nose or something. um, though, I guess the crocodile wrestler guy, that was never his strategy. But he was a little bit more... I don't know what he was. He was more of a lot of things than I am.
0: We're talking about Steve Irwin? Yeah. Well, he was mostly just showing you the crocodile. He didn't really want to fight the crocodile, right? He just wanted to let you meet the crocodile before it attacked him and he tried to escape.
1: My biggest Steve Irwin memory was when he uh, did a Sports Center ad and was fighting the Florida Gator.
0: Oh, that's a good bit. I like that. That's a good <laughs> um, so we've got another plug here. There is a, a community event coming up on Tuesday night at 4 PM. There's going to be a trivia night. Trivia night has not been posted to campus groups yet, but uh, it's about to be announced as my understanding. And uh, it probably will have been announced by the time people get a chance to listen to this. It's going to post early in the week. Uh, the location is at the study hall. And the prize for the winner of trivia night is a $100 bar tab. So if you like trivia night and you want a $100 bar tab, stay sober long enough to win the game and then drink for free until you cannot remember your name, I think is the the way to approach that night. So that's coming up on Tuesday night at 4 PM at the study hall. All right. So you're at Marshall now, presumably not forever. I think we will assume at some point you will manage to graduate, right?
1: That's the goal. Uh,
0: And we mentioned consulting. You're looking to go into consulting and to do general strategy.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Tell me why. And why pivot away from campaigns in the first place? Let's start there. Why why not just work on campaigns for it? It's obviously something you're passionate about. It's interesting. It's impactful, hopefully, on the world we live in. Why move away from it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna act like a, I, I don't miss it, and certainly there, um, I I do, and I think about it all the time, and I, I I love that urgency and that competitiveness. I guess the real reason I decided to move away was like I looked at the jobs that I might be having if I was doing this for ten or twenty years, you know, the things I might be doing when I'm forty, and you know, the I think more, there are a lot of different. Jobs and things people do, but like, assuming you know, sticking the campaign side of things, um, the uh, the consultant jobs are really the best, and this is very different than like the business consulting world. This is like you have your pollsters, you have your mail consultants, your media consultants, and um, you know, that is uh, I, I think those are the jobs a lot of people want. I found like a lot of those jobs, you spend about two thirds of a election year cycle, like begging congressional candidates, these like nobodies who are trying to run for Congress to like be your client. And then you like really work very hard because all the money comes together and all the messaging comes together. Like everything comes together at the end. You want to make your TV ads as late as possible, you know, so that you have the most up-to-date polling and, and uh, you know, you're taking into account, you know, you don't want to make a TV ad about one thing because you produced it in the spring and now it's fall and there's like a war and your message was totally off or or whatever it is. Um, So I I just didn't see the jobs long-term as being things I wanted to do and the things that people who made a really long career out of it just wasn't what I wanted. Um, And what I did love about campaigns was managing people, thinking about how the strategies we would put in place would motivate voters who are either undecided about who to vote for, or you know, who don't think about voting very often, and you're trying to make it easier for them and, and help them vote. Um, so is that kind of people management? And then you know, every campaign I've been a part of, even if it's with established candidate, there's this element of it's like a startup. You know, it's new, new, new people. Got to build a culture that works. You've got to, um, you know often bring on your consultants, your other vendors, you have to start from scratch. And that was really exciting to me. Um, And those were some of the things that pushed me towards the business world. You know, I wanna, I'm not leaving campaigns because I don't like traveling for work, but I do wanna have like a home. What's hard about campaigns is like you move every, or at least the way I was doing it, you were moving like every six months. And I worked in Utah and Michigan and Georgia and a bunch of different places and, I, that wasn't sustainable for me
0: yeah I mean doing that every cycle is even worse than the army or at least you get a couple of years in one place
1: uh, I some of my classmates in the army uh, it sounds pretty rough too um, and but yeah no, I know um, I there is an element of of campaigns that it's it's yeah it's really hard to do forever for that reason, because the yeah. moving around. Yeah.
0: Um, so consulting is the pivot. Why consulting?
1: Yeah, I I found that I wanted to work with things that were going to last longer than a campaign. Like, I did find it frustrating that you would work really hard to perfect something and then have it all fall apart, like on election day or after election day. Um, and you know, I, I'm consulting, you know, positioning a client for success longer term, and then you know, seeing that sounds uh, rewarding, and it it seems like a good mix. of you get to work on a lot of different things, expose myself to a lot of different industries, which you know, because I was in the campaign world, I haven't been exposed to a lot of different industries yet, in the same way some of my classmates have been. So, so like, there's this, you keep the urgency. I know there's a lot of like high achieving people in consulting the same way there are in campaigns. Um, but you know, the lifestyle is, uh, not easy, but it's, I think more where I'm at in my life right now. And, uh, it's a little, little longer term than campaigns. And that's kind of some of the things motivating me.
0: Is there a particular industry you'd like to get exposed to?
1: Um, is there a particular industry? I mean, I'm gonna say no. I just want to learn about everything. Um, I get really excited. We we just had our um, you know, bidding on our, our different projects for you know one of the term four and five courses where you you know, get to help a client, and like all of them sounded cool to me. You know, if if I kind of have the attitude that if if you're a business and people are willing to pay for your product. And or if you're offering a service and people are willing to pay for it, and you're employing people, and people are offering enough value that you're giving them a job, like there's something there um, <laughs> that that you are providing some sort of need. Oftentimes, and um, you know, uh, I'm, one 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 industry I'll say I am really interested in. I love the like basis of our financial system, and the whole idea that banks take money and lend it out to all kinds of people and that they get to do all kinds of things with it. And it's money that in some ways it doesn't really exist, right? You're lending the same dollar multiple times, but it works and it works beautifully. And um, we have all this value that's created because of it. So that, that's something that really is interesting to me. Um, seeing what my dad do does in terms of like helping people be more financially secure um, is really interesting. Um, but I mean, there's so many, and the world's changing so quickly. Um, and it's really hard to say what, what kind of industries are gonna make the biggest impact. I mean, obviously tech, and, but things are changing so fast. You know, you mentioned electric cars and I mean, the trajectory on that has changed so much since like the Prius was the only thing on the market, you know, and now it's just a totally different world. So I'm just eager to learn about any industry I, I can.
0: That's fascinating. And, and you're right about the banking, something as simple as me putting some money in a checking account is the foundation for all human prosperity for hundreds of years that like the whole thing is just someone realized I can put my money in a bank account and then it becomes more than one dollar. Mm-hmm. just a just a genius invention, and it's something so simple um, committed to l a are you looking? Maybe to travel a little more because you said you want to have a home and you said you like LA, uh, but you haven't yet said that you want LA to be your home for the long term.
1: Um, I'm not gonna throw Caroline, my fiance, under the bus here completely. I guess by saying that, I almost sort of did. No, but um, she loves New York. Uh, I think she she grew up in Chicago. I think she would be interested in going back there. I, I mean, I also really like New York. Um, and, you know, I was kind of traveling a lot, but, you know, between campaigns, I was always with her in uh, there. Um, but I, w- I would be happy to stay here. But there's so many cool places, um, you know, wish I could give an enthusiastic yes to L.A., but I'm not the only one making the decision.
0: I'm happy to have you throw your significant under other under- <laughs> the bus because. I'm looking for ratings mainly with this podcast. That's my main interest is ratings and relationship drama drives ratings. So anytime you wanna throw a significant uh, other under the bus. Future guests, you wanna be on the podcast, just tell me in an email. I'm gonna throw my significant other under the bus and you'll immediately be on the podcast. Um, So New York, you're not from New York, she's from New York. You do like New York. Have you ever lived in New York?
1: So my whole family is from New York Caroline moved there after school, and so I spent a lot of time there with her. We met in school, um, and uh, but growing up with family in in Maryland and all my extended family in New York, spent a ton of time there. Um, and you know, it's a little little crowded, little little dirty, but I love it. You know, it's. Um, There's like nowhere else like it in the US. Uh,
0: I've always loved visiting there. I wonder if I could live there.
1: I'm sure you could.
0: Because I am a person who would struggle without a car.
1: There are people in New York who have cars, believe it or not.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they spend a thousand dollars on a parking space every month.
1: Yeah, how much do we have to pay for our parking permits?
0: (laughs) Not a thousand a month.
1: No, not a thousand a month. No, it what is, is, it, it is 2, crazy
0: for the full academic year, or something like that. I don't
1: remember know, what it that's was. That's still a lot of money, but yeah, you're, you're right. Um, but, and it's really interesting to think about like the different changes that New York has had and how the pandemic impacted it and like what the future is, is going to be for a place like, like that. Um, these densely populated urban areas and what preferences are, are going to be like i mean i i definitely i, I think I'll, i i prefer to be in you know a densely populated area like that um i think la is a good middle ground between like it's it's breathable but you know you can find neighborhoods that are also walkable and and fun um uh but yeah no i i would be happy to go back to new york with, with caroline
0: do you have thoughts on the future of new york
1: Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I it it's this, it's a very active city government, which is interesting. Um, I mean so much, I, I think here's really what I think about a lot of markets where rents are so high you have all these people who are like preventing more development. And I mean, I, th- I think the only real solution for New York to bring down rents and to make the city and some of the you know, outer boroughs that are becoming more expensive accessible again, you've got to build a lot more. Um, and that inevitably means pissing off some people who are currently in those neighborhoods, um, you know, especially like-
0: Speaking of hot political takes, housing, oh boy.
1: Yeah. I mean, but I think that's really what it's like if New York gets a little stronger on transit and housing, um, you know, it would, it would mean a lot for the the city right now. Um, I mean, obviously housing in LA is a hot button issue, but like, you know, so many parts of Manhattan, you know, you have these strong neighborhood associations really lived in with their city council. Actually, I dealt with the same thing in Ann Arbor um where the people who are most involved in local government are the people who don't want to build a lot of times they want to keep new people out um uh and you know that just means higher rents and it's less accessible
0: hey man they're just trying to preserve the character of the neighborhood don't you know (laughs) it's totally harmless and has no ulterior motives they're just trying to preserve the character of the neighborhood
1: yeah, in Ann Arbor, a lot of times this manifested itself with, uh, with like transportation issues and bus routes and not wanting, you know, like we all knew what they, what they meant about the people that they didn't want coming into the city, you know, uh, homeless people, working people, black people, you know, whatever it is, um, keeping it for them. Uh, it's, but- a, it's
0: a video, it's an audio medium. So people could not see me smirking as I said that, but I'm, I'm with you. I'm pretty much in the Yimby camp at this point.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's what makes it hard though. Like you have to, if we're going to build a better society, uh, there has to be some, can have everything you want. You know, if you want lower rents, you have to acknowledge that they're going to have to build a higher, you need more supply, um, of housing. So, right.
0: All right. So we've come pretty close to the end of our time uh i want to give you in the tradition of what fez used to do where he would give the guest two minutes at the end of every episode to talk about anything that they wanted so the floor is yours for the next two minutes i will time you and cut you off no i won't uh you, you, it doesn't have to be two minutes but try to keep it to two minutes Use uses practice for short interview answers for consulting
1: how about this, Caroline? I love you so much. I'm not throwing you under the bus. <laughs> if, if, you're, if you're listening to this, just know that I would be thrilled to live in New York or any number of places. Um, uh, so I, that's, that's how i use part of my time. But no, I, I mean, I just I want to thank you for for having me be a part of this. It's been really great to get to know you um, and preparing for this and, and doing this with you. And I'm really excited. Uh, and, you know, I want to thank all my all my classmates because um, it, it's been, you know, I've only been here, you know, like since July, I guess it's November I'll, in a few days. But it's really been a great experience. And a lot of people have helped help me make that experience so much fun.
0: And it goes by unbelievably fast. That we're already hey, in you, November.
1: You've got. Yeah, it is true. We are already in November. And, you know, uh, somebody counted. Like after midterms, we were about twelve percent done with our MBA experience, which I viewed—I I chose to view as a eighty-eight percent of it remaining, not twelve percent of it behind me. But um.
0: yeah. <laughs> All right, Max. I want to thank you so much for joining us. It was a fascinating conversation, and uh, we wish you the very best in your pursuit of consulting. Uh, as a person who pursued consulting, let me know, of course, any time that I can help you in that journey. I'm very happy to do it. And uh, I'm sure that you'll do great when it comes to interview time, and you'll probably get one or probably more than one offer. And uh, we're all hoping that that's what will what will happen for you. And uh, Caroline, it, it, it was nice that uh, the political staffer at the end of his interview used his two minutes to do damage control. I thought it was very on, <laughs> it was very on brand for, for the uh, political staffer and expert, but this was a very fun conversation. I really enjoyed having you on.
1: Yes. Thanks so much, John.
0: All right.